0: Welcome to Demystifying Tech, a business cloud podcast which examines the impact of technology on industry and wider society. In each episode, a technologist from one of the UK's most innovative companies will break down a key area of tech and offer practical takeaways for your business. In this episode, we are joined by Ali Hamriti, CEO and co-founder of Fintech Rowley, which aims to improve financial inclusion for self-employed workers. Today, Ali will discuss the problems faced by those operating in the gig economy, explain how Roly is helping them to access products such as credit and mortgages, reveal how it is growing at an equal pace in the UK and France, and advise startups on how to improve financial inclusivity. Good morning. Uh, you're not very well today, are you? You've got a bit of a sore throat. Uh,
1: good morning, John, and thanks for having me. I'm I'm a bit suffering, but it will be okay. We, we're going to make it. I'm super happy to to attend your podcast.
0: You have lemon sips in France, with you know, like hot lemon. <laughs> <laughs> look, I mean, I'm I'm I'm
1: still in Paris. I mean, like the weather in Paris is pretty good. I, I try to understand how uh, I got this cold, but uh, but look, we are by the end of October, so I think it's pretty normal. I'm not going to complain.
0: Amazing. Um, yeah, let's start off. Let's get straight into it. So, you know, what do we mean by the gig economy, first of all? Because you know, we- you think about kind of, uh, I don't know, Uber drivers and delivery workers in the UK. But actually, there are other types of workers that fall into this category, right?
1: Sure, sure. That's the most like, well-known type of gig economy today because we are used to have those applications that you mentioned, like Uber, Deliveroo, all of those applications. Uh, but the gig economy covers uh, all type of short-term jobs or specific products. Uh, that are run by independent contractors this is what we call like the gig economy and it impacts all the industries not the industries that we know like like the food industry the delivery but all uh, all industries have their own gig worker independent contractor that decided to freelance their skills um it's a trend that has always existed it's not new uh, but this trend has been accelerated over the past decade with the internet with uh, the number of new applications that help people to uh, develop new sources of revenues.
0: So that's like the what we call today the gig economy. So for example, it could be a solopreneur, someone who's got a side hustle that sort of turns into their main source of income. It could be a journalist who's working freelance. And actually, when these people come into this world, they maybe don't understand some of the problems they're going to face. We're going to explain that in a moment. Yeah. Sixty-six percent of gig workers of all these across all these sort of areas have been denied a loan, haven't they? Despite having good credit scores, while a third have missed out on opportunities such as buying a new home, um, you know, mortgages, for example, been declined by building societies and banks. But these they can often, or, or, or for a large part, actually afford these things. But actually, the, the system lets them down, doesn't it?
1: Yes, totally. Um... We have a different type of gig workers and in general people uh, who decided to start being independent contractors or freelancers. One of example that I that I like to, to share, that I like to mention, is the example of immigrants that are like high skilled. They used to be doctors, they used to be lawyers, and they have like to go to another country. And because it's quite complicated for them to find a similar job, they start with the gig economy. Uh, so they start there like low income job, the time to get the right diplomas and the, the, the right certifications to redo their job. Um, and we have like other people that just decided to start being a freelancer because they want to increase their revenues and more than that to diversify their sources of revenues. So just those, those two different categories of workers give us the fact that the gig economy is not something that is unique centered around one type of worker but we can find a lot of different type of gig workers the problem that you that you mentioned like the fact that a lot of gig workers are still denied financial services is because the financial system has still some standards around worker solvability that are more beneficial to full-time employees we still consider that full-time employees that have a single employer are less risky than freelancers which Today is not really true. When we know that a lot of industries have to lay off, especially this podcast is demystifying tech. We know that like, the number of layoffs in, in, in the tech ecosystem. So it's not because you are like full-time employee in a startup or a scale-up that you're guaranteed that you're gonna get like the, the your job during a long time. Of course, your employability is good because you can join another startup. But by definition, you can lose your job after one, two, or three years uh, uh, because uh, the, the business you're working for is risky. And financial institutions consider freelancers are uh, as, as more risky than full-time employees because they don't have the right tools to consider them as less risky. They don't understand the nature of their revenues. They don't understand the nature of their activity. They are not today... Um, they are not today empowered to project the income of a freelancer in the future. And this is exactly what we try to solve at Roly. We try by building their infrastructure to help them to put more context about freelancing, uh, uh, about like different types of jobs, to help them to be more confident on providing them with financial services that they need.
0: Before we go into your background and, and the origins of the company and, and what Roly does in, in more detail... And um, just give me an indication of how that employment landscape is changing, because once upon a time, perhaps the vast majority of people were just in employment with a company. But like you said, you know, COVID has also had that impact where people are working from home. Maybe they have more confidence to strike out on their own as well. Like I said, maybe they were laid off from the tech sector or many other sectors, you know, in in, in sort of an economic downturn and out of necessity had to strike out. So actually, how did you see this kind of employment landscape sort of changing let's say, over the next five to 10 years?
1: We, we, we tend to forget that COVID was two three years ago. So it's still super recent. And we are still uh, witnessing the effects of the COVID on the employment landscape. Uh, thus, Rolly is a small company, but we're a good example of the type of companies that have been built during COVID. Uh, I founded Rolly with my co-founder. We had to work remotely at the beginning. Uh, we didn't have time like, to see each other. And we decided to build... Uh, not a full remote company, but a remote first company by hiring people in different countries. And just like this, idea wasn't like a popular idea or something that we thought could be possible in big cities like Paris or London, where the local workforce is highly skilled. And usually, we just think about building local teams. So the first big effect that we're still witnessing is companies that uh, want since day one to build international team and to hire in different countries, different geographies, which has some positive effects because you think about building a business that is scalable, you're not afraid about engaging with partners or customers in other markets that are not your local market. But at the same time, what we observed is the uh, willingness of a lot of, especially like the youths, uh, to work with teams uh, with like more social interactions because they struggle during the pandemic more than anyone else, especially uh, people who are doing their master's degree or, or bachelor. Uh, and uh, we have like to provide uh, as a company to all of those workers um, an environment that match with their with their expectations. So this is like the the first effect that we that we've observed as the willingness of workers to choose their job. Now, regarding like the employment, there are like other things that are currently impacting the employment landscape. We can talk about the AI because it's the buzzword of demand, even if AI hasn't been built in, uh, in six months. But right now, uh, we've seen a lot of companies that had to, uh, to lay off because they consider that some jobs could be replaced by an AI. Obviously, we've seen a lot of studies saying that those, some industries are at a high risk to be replaced by AI. I think in general that the employment landscape will evolve based on the global market trends. So there is like no uh, new new trend regarding this. It's, it's more, how can we match with what companies wants to do in terms of automation, in terms of uh, not losing this momentum of being more performant thanks to the AI, and at the same time, the willingness of people to join some companies.
0: So you saw this problem firsthand while you were working for a previous company. Can you just describe what happened and how you identified this opportunity, if you like? Um, uh, so I'm, I'm a data scientist. This is, I still consider that as my job.
1: Uh, I think that uh, founding a company is more a vocation, like more a willingness to do something, but I, I still identify myself as a data scientist. Um, and I was, uh, I was working for FinTech that provided loans to freelancers, to small businesses. Uh, the first observation was but we wanted to build some analysis, we wanted to see uh, who's, um, who's a good profile or who's not a good profile with just a single source of, of data, which was like banking data in general. We, we thought that with banking data, we can do everything. That's wrong. You can't do everything with banking, with banking data. You can do a lot of things. You can do amazing things to make the financial system more inclusive. But it doesn't match with all of the financial products in the market, and you are trying like, to define some rules on some things that are not really suited to what you want to predict. Simple example with bank open banking. For buy now pay later, of course, we can do like a quick credit check about like the last months of uh, transactions to uh, help someone to buy an iPhone. But what about the mortgage? What about car financing? What about financial products with like a high risk? You need to assess the professional situation. You, you need to project the income of people, of people. So open banking was not enough. It can like provide a small picture of the current financial situation, especially the expenses, how people are, are uh, uh, spending their money. But to be sure about the, financial professional, uh, the, the professional situation of someone, we needed other types of data that we call alternative data. And basically, payroll data is part of that. So the first observation was, could, could we add new sources of data to be more inclusive in the way that we are underwriting people? Starting with that, we identified, especially for freelancers, new type of data sources like gig platforms. We are talking about that. Freelancers platforms try to understand what is the activity of freelancer. And just with, with that type of data, we were more confident to provide a loan to someone. So the company I used to work for, I was talking about Layoffs recently, the company I used to work for had to shut down because of the pandemic, the first day of uh, the lockdown. So it's the reality of a lot of tech uh, companies that suffered during the pandemic. And it was clear that what we observed with my team at the moment has to be solved at scale, not only for lending, but in general, to make all... Data that people owns their their data, their activity, their income, all of the data that can help them to be to improve their credit score or to improve their uh, uh, their um, probability to have a loan, has to be leveraged. And to leverage that, we need to build an infrastructure that can connect all of the data sources. I suppose you're
0: kind of living the experience, founding the company. Just tell me a little bit about how that how that happened, how you did that. You say your co-founder is based in the UK, is that right? And how, how is the UK an important market for you? So my co-founder is based on South of France. He,
1: he loves the UK. And I love the UK too, but he, ah, he, he's yeah. a proud in South of France. Um So we we met through a, through a common connection. Um, and so like the fun fact, when I met him the first time, I was looking for a co-founder that has like some skills that I didn't consider having, and completely complementary to, to, to what I wanted to do. Uh, we met uh, so the day before the second lockdown. So it's a question of lockdown still. <laughs> uh, so we just had like a quick meeting before his train back to, to south of France. And we decided, just after that, to work remotely, so not working together in Paris, um, during four months, without any counterparty, to be sure that we definitely match in terms, first of all, super important. If there is like a fit, a human fit, and second one, if uh, we are aligned about the type of company that we wanted to build, um, and it was natural. I mean, at some point when it's working, you don't think about, uh, uh, you don't ask yourself some questions. I mean, when when you have like a fit with a professional fit with someone, you just continue, and uh, it's been like three years. So, yeah.
0: so if you're if you've got a data science background, but you're the CEO, is he also sort of a technical guy or? No, he he's uh, so he was
1: sales director in a fintech firm in 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 Paris, uh, and the way that we fragmented the organization at Folly, we consider that CEO is everything rela- related to external things. So basically, doing this podcast, trying to uh, share with people what we are doing and to share our mission. Uh, doing the fundraising with investors, for example, that's another example. Uh, and internally, so this is like the role of Pierre as a COO. He's like more involved than me of the internal things, which is uh, people engagement, uh, running the administration, running like the, the financial spending. So we we just plated the responsibility between uh, external and internal, and uh, that's honestly a good organization that I can share with early stage founders that want to build a company. If you're like two co-founders, that's super important to fragment really well what you are doing and not having a lot of overlap. And that has been recommended by our early investors, Alexi from Kim Aventure, so French founder that said that this is what he observed before. That's where that was working well. Yeah.
0: You said that the UK was kind of an important market from the outset and you've been growing equal in the UK and France. How did you approach growing in the UK? If, you didn't have a co-founder base there, for example. How how did you approach that? That's a great question. Since day one,
1: we we were convinced that addressing the UK really really fast uh, is critical for us because financial services, the financial landscape in the UK, and especially the startup financial landscape, is more developed in the UK uh, than any other countries in in, in Europe. Uh, we decided. I mean. We we started with the choice of our first lead investors, which is SIDCAMP, UK-based, and also our first business owners are uh, British people uh, we, uh, used to invest in startups in uh, in Europe in general, uh, and they helped us to to develop our first leads to sign our first customers. Uh, I during the first year of the development of Raleigh, uh I just, I was like. Uh, I came a lot of time in London, so basically sometimes I was spending about one week per month uh, meeting customers, prospects, doing some presentations. Uh, So for us, it was pretty clear that we wanted to prove two things, that our product is scalable in the UK or France, that we can address both of markets, Uh, that really had to be a good brand in the UK because we believe the UK in the future will be our, our main market. And we know that we are selling to banks, to insurance, and it takes time to create a relationship and a trust regarding a solution. So we wanted to start as early as possible to be sure that we are in a good
0: position in the future to engage the best customers in the UK. You say you're working with banks and insurers. Are you working with like early stage startups too, to help them build a kind of more inclusive financial product from the outset? Sure. So...
1: As all startups, we all start by selling to startup and scale up. So if you look at our uh, portfolio of customers, there are the mainly startups and scale up. Some of them are no longer considered as startup and scale up because they have a strong business model. They are doing like dozens of millions of RRR per year, and basically, uh, they are like more uh, future competitor of incumbents right now. Uh, and regarding banks and insurance, we started to. Uh, talk to them like recently six months ago uh to to discuss how we can like, work together for us it was it was important to go super fast to iterate on our product and it's much more easier with flexible startup and scale up than doing that with banks and insurance as you know selling to banks and insurance takes time and also it's uh, a common process to start with the proof of concept, to do some consulting before uh, scaling. So for us, it was, it was clear. And for early stage startups, we just observed that there is a new ecosystem of financial, of uh, FinTech, that wants to build inclusive financial products thanks to payroll API. So we just uh, uh, understood uh, that our infrastructure can help all of those startups to build innovative financial products. And we have to partner with them. We have to help them to build their product at the beginning so we we did a lot of workshops with with some of our companies to accelerate their um, their product launch uh, and as part of them some of them would be the future leaders and we want to be the infrastructure that we have them
0: so payroll data is where you start and i know you've touched upon a couple of other areas but you know what are the kind of plans for bringing other data in from other sources over over the next year two years three years however long you want to partner
1: Good question. I mean, of course, parallel data. Parallel data is fragmented across hundreds of different platforms. That's a fact, and it's growing, because we are talking about uh, gig platforms and financial platforms, but if we talk about also HRIS for full-time employees or HRIS for platform workers, we see industries like construction uh, being digitalized thanks to new solutions in the market, and we aim at uh, being integrated into the solutions to help people share their income data thanks to those uh, new softwares so just with payroll data uh, there are tons of things to do uh, to be the to have the highest coverage in this landscape the vision of roly is to first of all provide job to be done to our customer we want to remove frictions for them to access the data that they need but more than that we want to help them to run their use cases to reduce the default rate to reduce the, their churn rate and with that we Always have to consider new data sources to put the best context around a company or around a worker. So I can talk about all of the open databases in France or in the UK that we can connect to and we can leverage all of those data. I can talk about also the new um, AI powered tool that can help to identify some data sources or to collect information regarding the market. Uh, we are building a data science team that has mainly two objectives, being sure that our customers make always the best decision and being sure that our infrastructure is growing with the best coverage in the market. So parallel data to start, and of course, completing parallel data with uh, other type of uh, data sources.
0: And I suppose once that kind of, those, those, uh, the result of using your product shines through in terms of the number of, you you know, bringing those customers on board, increasing that holistic view of it. I guess it sells itself, right? And, and it's quite a sticky product, I imagine.
1: Yes, um, it's uh, so th- this is where you see the difference between FinTech infrastructure, that that, that we are at Roly, and uh, and software as a service platforms. So when customers decide to integrate Roly, it's a specific product. It can take time for some of them, uh, but when it's a success, the probability of churn is super low because they have built some products on top of uh, of us. Uh, they can like measure the um, the the. They can measure like how they reduce, for example, their their losses. How they reduce their churn, their their their, their fraud rate. Um, so there is a strong stickiness in general with fintech infrastructure, especially open finance platforms like us. Uh, it's uh, it's great to start. I mean, we don't need thousands of customers to scale. Having a few customers, but with like a high potential for us is better than uh, uh, multiplying the number of, uh, of customers. Uh, but we are focused on how we can always bring them like more value. We think that it's sticky for the next 10 years, but if you think about the next 20 or 30 years, we have to provide like more and more value. And we want to, by the end, help them to, to to always like see how, how to use the data and not just collecting the data.
0: So, so this is the part of the pod, where we ask you for your tech takeaways. So a few quick fire tips for startups looking to improve the financial inclusivity of their products. What can you tell them? The, the, the first advice,
1: um, something that we've been working with our customers and we figure out that it's not like the priority for a lot of companies is to have a clear view of their users, who the users are, uh, what are their backgrounds? Are they freelancers or full-time employees? Are they coming from this geography? So, doing a customer segmentation first is super important. Why? Because based on this customer segmentation, they can figure out that using your for 20% of the users, for example, could be much more affordable, could be like much more um, uh, rewarding in, for, for their metrics than using another platform that doesn't match this, uh, this uh, type of customers. So, there, there is. We are in a world where we can use a lot of APIs to run several use cases, and we always have to figure out what is the best solution that is suited to this category of customers of users, and how can I improve uh, uh, my uh, my solutions thanks to that? And this, starting with this work, will help them to identify Raleigh, for example have the platform that can help them to build a specific car finance products or lending products for Uber drivers, or to build like a mortgage offer for developers that are freelancers, uh, or to build, for example, uh, a specific leasing offer for companies that are using Rollies H.A.R.I.S. Employees integration. So just with that, they can have a lot of uh, uh, new information and they can have a lot of new ideas on how to improve their product.
0: I guess that's it's kind of building it into every aspect of the business, right? Whether it's the business plan, your customer acquisition strategy, you just need that that lens of actually how do we offer more value? How do we sort of onboard people who maybe could fall through the cracks? But actually just having that there in the background, looking through it and saying, be aware of that. Is that kind of message getting across to the market? Are people when you go into a meeting, for example, let's say in London, are do the people get what you're trying to do? Or is it kind of a bit of a light bulb moment where they say, oh, do you know what? I've never really thought about that.
1: Um, I would say it depends. Sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm meeting some product managers who are aware of our solutions, who looked at other markets like the US and how solutions like Wally helped uh, big new banks to uh, be better in their financial innovation. Uh, but usually I have to admit that, that uh, solutions like Rolly are new solutions. It's normal, it's a new category. We, b- Before us in, in Europe, uh, you didn't have any similar solutions. So that's like just a fact. And we have to continue to educate uh, decision uh, people who have to make some decisions so risk managers, product managers, data scientists, um, that it's possible to look at other alternative data sources that are much more adapted to their use cases instead of trying to do everything with one single source. This is the first, uh, for me, shortage of the way that that uh, some um, people in the industries are running the use cases is that they said, I took, for example, two years to integrate open banking. I'm going to do everything with open banking. It's not, at some point, the right way to do it. It's easy to integrate other uh, data sources, or uh, other platforms like Rolly, And the question is more, is this open finance platform, is open banking platform match with what I want to achieve regarding this category of users, yes or no, regarding this financial product, yes or no. Uh, Based on that, uh, we we can have like some deep discussions on how we can go uh, and help them in their use cases. And I prefer that way because it's a lot of learnings also for us on uh, what type of data sources we have
0: to actually to be complete solutions for them. Okay, Roly coming to a, a fintech platform in the UK near you soon. Let's step away from that for a moment and let's let's meet Ali Hamriti himself. Tell me something about yourself that would surprise me to finish off. So something surprising, um... something personal. It could be it could be something to do with business as well, but yeah, something. Yeah, I mean something that is that is not common. I'm not sure that you're going to find this. Uh
1: for all companies, uh, especially early stage in the UK or or France or anywhere. We we wanted to build an international team with my co-founder. That's what's super important for us. So at the beginning we said, if one day we we are 100 people at the company, uh, we'd love to have 20 nationalities, 20 different nationalities. Actually we're 23 and we have 20 nationalities different. So just, it, it wasn't something that we wanted to reach, it wasn't like an objective, it was completely natural that our first employees-
0: 23 uh, staff, 20 nationalities.
1: Yeah, 20 nationalities. So so, so basically some people are, for example, I'm, I'm Moroccan and French. Pauline is French and German, I had marketing. Uh, Thibaut, I had of product, is French and American. But if you add like all of the different nationalities, we're gonna find that 20, probably. Uh, it wasn't, as I said, something that we wanted to do. I mean, we had like other objectives, but naturally we ended with just as a, as a still a small team, I would consider um, having more than 20 nationalities. So that uh, was uh, surprising and we're super happy with that because it's uh, uh, one of our main strengths uh, is that w- with that, we understand better different markets. We understand better different ways to address our solution. Uh, and we think that if we continue to do uh while our work that would be uh, exponentially rewarding if you could
0: wow so that, that's that's really good advice and and actually by creating it as a remote first company as you said earlier on it takes away that barrier doesn't it i know i know for example london and paris are very diverse uh, you know people from also you know all different countries live there um, and nationalities but actually by saying we're remote first you don't have to live within a certain geographical boundary you actually you open the door to employing someone on a different continent, for example.
1: Yes, exactly. I um, mean, you you, you summarize like how we ended with, with, with that. Um, what the, one of the main learnings regarding being remote first is that sometimes you don't need to hire in dozens of different geographies. We just figure out that there are like some different regions of the world where we can find that, especially one one country, one city. but some regions of the world where the workforce regarding the one specific skill is great. And that's also a like good learning if we enter a phase, a phase of scaling uh, to uh, consider that as well.
0: Fabulous. Right, really? Listen, it's been an absolute absolute pleasure today learning about Roly, learning about how you're trying to include improve uh, financial inclusivity, you know, through working with your partners. Um, Yeah. Gig economy workers are facing these problems. You know, they come in many shapes and sizes, you know, different industries, for example. Um, Yeah. It's, it's, it's something that we all need to be aware of. So thank you for that. Thanks a lot, John. Uh, a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah. If you've got any feedback on today's episode, um, you know, scribble it down on LinkedIn, X or YouTube, or drop us an email at podcasts at businesscloud.co.uk. If you enjoyed the episode and found it useful, please like and subscribe on your preferred podcast platform to be among the first to hear insights from technologists at renowned companies of all sizes. Thanks for listening and see you soon. The Mystifying Tech is a Business Cloud podcast produced in partnership with Pan-European B2B tech PR and communications agency Taito. New episodes are streamed on Business Cloud's YouTube, LinkedIn and Twitter pages from 12pm on the second Friday of every month, while you can find all episodes on YouTube and all major audio podcast platforms. Subscribe now so you never miss an episode.